I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, the strange story of how our world became plastic, how that plastic saved countless lives, and why it may be dangerous. I don't think that we can get a divorce. I, I think plastic is too internet into modern life and in ways that are good and in ways that we want. Then, if you're looking to give this holiday season, there are plenty of new ways to make a difference. Just writing a check used to feel like the kind of thing we all did as a good thing. But now there's so many other things you can do. Plus, China's mostly cornered the world market for pharmaceuticals. So what does that mean for us? If China shut the door on exports for whatever reason, pharmacy shelves in the United States would be bare within months. That's how dependent we are. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Once upon a time, there was a lovely party in the suburbs. The partygoers were mostly middle-aged mothers and fathers, but the guest of honor was much younger. Hey, there's the award-winning scholar. We're all very proud of you, Ben. Thank you, Mrs. Carlson. Is that the new car out there, that little red wop job? That's Ben's graduation. Well, you won't have much trouble picking up on that, will you? Yes, sir. The girls, the chicks, the teeny boppers. Oh, I think Ben's gotten me on the teeny bopper stage, haven't you, Ben? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Benjamin Braddock had just graduated from college, and he was aiming to find his way in the world, which is when he got a piece of advice that didn't just stick with him. It stuck with a lot of us. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastics. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Braddock didn't actually think much about plastics as a career opportunity, in part because he wasn't a real person. He was the main character in a 1967 movie called The Graduate. But the advice he got said a lot about America's love of stuff. I think by that time, plastic, which had once been seen as this kind of magical stuff, was considered this, you know, ersatz, kitschy, cheap, crappy material. Susan Frankel is a science journalist and the author of the book Plastic, A Toxic Love Story. And the idea of a life working in this stuff, which, you know, was sort of the ultimate fake thing, just couldn't seem like, you know, a a drearier, deader existence for, you know, baby boomer Benjamin Braddock. Frankel says that that moment in The Graduate, when Dustin Hoffman, who plays Braddock, looks stone-faced as a friend of his parents tells him his future is in plastic. That moment was a turning point. It reflected a movement against the material that had come to symbolize 20th century America, a material we fell head over heels for that helped us win a war that revolutionized medicine and that then started to clog the environment and, as Frankel said, people began to think of as crap. More recently, it has prompted headlines about health risks. You're sort of kidding yourself if you think you can protect yourself from all of these hazards. Fundamentally, this is like the one area where I feel like we need stronger, tougher chemical laws if we're really going to ensure that we don't have things in our lives that are dangerous. We'll get back to plastic and health a little later on. But here's something to keep in mind as you unwrap Legos and Barbies and DVD players and new lawn furniture this holiday. 
I don't think that we can get a divorce. I, I think plastic is too internet into modern life and in ways that are good and in ways that we want. The modern world created plastic, and plastic, strange as it may seem, helped create the modern world, for better or for worse. As journalist Susan Frankel discovered when she tried to go one day, just one day, without touching plastic. And so I got up that morning and walked into the bathroom, and the first thing I looked at was the plastic toilet seat, and then my plastic toothbrush, and then my plastic toothpaste tube. And, you know, I realized there was no way I could get through a day and not touch anything plastic. So, you know, I quickly revised the plan and decided to spend the day writing down everything. <laughs> right. An easier route. An easier route. And by day's end, I had a much bigger list than I'd ever imagined and a much more varied list than I'd ever imagined. Hmm. The subtitle of your book, as I said, is A Toxic Love Story. There's kind of two pieces of that. Let's start with the love piece first. What is it about plastics when you just talk about that, like even just your bathroom? And oh my God, we haven't gone into the kitchen yet and talked about all the fruit that we buy, and almost all of it is in some kind of plastic, solid, or um, sort of soft, you know, plastic container. What is it about plastic that has made us just fall in love with it? Well, you know, plastic isn't one thing. It's a lot of different materials. And we've gotten very good at making them. We've gotten very good at taking these molecules and turning them into the things that we want them to be. I mean, plastic, by definition, is malleable. It's moldable. And we can make it for cheap. And so thanks to plastic, we've managed to create this enormously varied, kind of dazzlingly distinctive and, and differentiated and exciting, colorful world in the mold of all the things that we want. Um, it took a long time for the industry and, and chemists and scientists to figure out how to do that. But at this point, we're pretty darn good at it. Mm -hmm. And like I said, we're able to sort of create this material abundance for ourselves on the cheap. And, you know, that's always a pretty appealing proposition. When you talk to, you know, when you use that phrase, a toxic love story, when do you think our relationship became toxic or has it always been toxic from the beginning of the relationship? No, I mean, I, you know, I used that phrase because I do very much think there is this kind of arc in our relationship with this stuff where we kind of became entranced and dazzled by it. It insinuated itself into our lives. And then we find ourselves very dependent on this stuff, which in many ways has some serious problems for, you know, our health mm -hmm. and our environment. In the 30s, pollsters asked people. Uh, Americans what their favorite word in the English language was, and um, cellophane was in the top three along with motherhood and memory. <laughs> so, you know. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> my how the mighty have fallen. I mean, it, it, <laughs> that was also a plastic, but it had a very sort of different kind of tantalizing feel to people. So I think, you know, 67 is one period. The graduate is one marking point of the start of the tarnishing of the love affair. And, you know, and then there have sort of been different periods along the way. I mean, obviously, the discovery in uh, the early 2000s of this giant portion of the North Pacific Ocean where trash accumulates and where a huge amount of it is plastic. People call it the Great Garbage Patch. 
that has brought about a, a great disenchantment, I think, and really sort of made people wake up to the consequences of our reliance on plastic, in particular, sort of disposable, single-use plastics. Hmm. Was there a moment in history when something changed and plastics became just explosive in their growth and sort of led to what we see now in this kind of really, really plastic-colored world we live in? I think the big turning point in the production was in the period following World War II, or really during the war and following it. Up until World War II, plastics had a kind of small place in people's lives. But um, a lot of plastics had been invented in within sort of the petrochemical industry. A lot of them, people didn't really know what to do with and hadn't found applications for them. And it wasn't until World War II that some of these plastics sort of found their place or found uses. So for hmm. instance, you know, bugles for the army, which would have been made of brass, a toy company in New Jersey suddenly started producing plastic bugles, which the army could use. Huh. Magnify that, you know, many, many times. And by the end of the war, you have what had been a pretty nascent industry had built up a pretty good production capacity. And you have a consuming public that for, you know, 20 years through the Depression and the war has been scrimping and saving and is now ready to actually start living fuller lives you know, mm -hmm. and they're flush with money from the GI Bill and so forth. So you put those th two things together, and what happens is an explosion in both plastics production and plastics consumption. And suddenly you have, you know, plastic going into all sorts of different things. You've got plastic fabrics. You've got, you know, plastic being used for, you know, TVs and stereos and in furniture and in kitchen counters and the lining of refrigerators and in toys. That became a huge application for plastic following the war, thanks to the baby boom. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you look at a graph of plastics production in the decade after the war, it rose on something like the order of 500 percent. It does seem like those two, these two things, like the rise of plastics and the baby boom are so intertwined. I mean, it's hard to imagine now a toy industry that does not have Barbie in it or G.I. Joe or <laughs> Legos, right? Yeah, and all yeah. these things, these are mountains and mountains and mountains of plastic. So in some ways, you know, we heard the clip from The Graduate earlier. It's no surprise that by, you know, that 20 years into the baby boom, people are saying plastics, that's the ticket. I, it's just, it, it, you know... It's hard to imagine now, like, this world without plastics. I, I think I interviewed someone who said, you know, plastic is one of the great business stories of the 20th century, and it really was and is. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at plastic, that industry has been on a basically upward line since the mid-20th century with a slight blip around the 2008 recession. And I can't think of any other industry that has grown that way. Right. We'll talk about some of the downsides of plastics in a minute, but I want to talk about some of the upsides. Um, you write about how plastic revolutionized medicine. And unless you spend a lot of time in a hospital, your nurse, your doctor or something, you may not think about all the plastic that's involved in medicine. But do you want to talk a little bit about how medicine changed because of plastic? Well, I remember being in the hospital when my mother was ill and looking around her room and realizing that everything that surrounded it, everything that surrounded us was plastic, including, you know, a good part of the synthetic joint that went into her new hip. Plastic provided mm. 
um, gosh, it's hard to think of what it didn't provide. I mean, it provided sanitary equipment, the ability to have disposable equipment. It provided new kinds of medical devices. It's the, you know, casing for things like MRIs. It's in, you know, fine instruments. Um, it's the bags with blood. It's the bags with IV fluid. It's the, it's, when you get a shot, what is that, you know, holder made out of that the nurse is giving you? Plastic. Exactly, exactly. Thank you. Well put. I tell the story about IV bags, which was a dramatic and huge innovation, because up until that point, blood had been collected in glass bottles, which was not the greatest system, if for no other reason that they were prone to break. The idea of having a flexible blood bag was an absolute revolution. It meant that people could um, collect blood more easily, store it more easily. You didn't have to rely on gravity simply for the blood to flow. I mean, there were just a lot of possibilities that came about through that plastic vinyl IV bag. Would you guess that plastic then has saved a lot of lives when you think about what it's done in medicine? Oh, I, you know, yes. I mean, you could not have modern medicine without plastic at this point. I mean, just take another example, disposable syringes. Could you imagine navigating something like the AIDS epidemic without disposable syringes? Plastic has saved tons of lives. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Susan Frankel, author of the book Plastic, A Toxic Love Story. When you think about sort of the dangers that exist from plastic, and you know, we see headlines all the time about different ingredients in plastic that some new study has said is mm, maybe not so good and maybe should be pulled out of plastics. Do you worry? I mean, you know how much of your life and the world around you is made of plastic, coated in plastic, whatever. Um, do you worry about the other side of this, which is the effect of plastic on your health in a negative way? Well, it's a complicated issue. Not all plastics are bad. There are some bad plastics. There are some plastics that contain chemicals that may be hazardous to our health. It's not acute hazards like lead or radioactive materials. The chief danger of some of the chemicals that are in some plastics is that they may disrupt or interfere with hormones in our bodies. And probably the worst impacts there have more to do with the timing of exposure. There are certain periods in, in our lives, you know, when we're in the womb, when we're newborn, when we're, we're entering puberty. There are certain vulnerable periods in people's lives where they're more susceptible to the dangers of their hormones being disrupted. And there are some plastics that seem to have that effect. I mean, plastics are emblematic of a much bigger problem, which is that we are surrounded by thousands and thousands of industrial chemicals that haven't been adequately vetted for their safety. And that's not just in plastics. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is in all sorts of things. When, you know, the CDC does analyses of the chemicals that are in people's bloodstreams, we're all harboring dozens of industrial chemicals at very, very minute traces. I mean, it's not like we're carrying, you know, a quart of PCBs in our systems or DDT in our systems. These are very small trace amounts, but there's growing evidence that trace amounts can affect our health. Hmm. What I worry about is less any individual chemical than that sort of stew of synthetical chemicals that we are all marinating in all the time. Are there things on the market right now that um, 
you would avoid that, you know, given what you know about plastics, you might, you know, kind of stay away from certain kinds of ingredients or certain types of plastics? Yes and no. (laughs) I think vinyl is a bad plastic. It's made with really toxic stuff to begin with. It's really only usable when you add a lot of chemicals to it. Um, And the phthalates that are used to make it flexible, we know that they migrate out and Hmm. we know that they can get into humans who come into contact with them. So I think, you know, soft vinyls are not a great thing. I would try to reduce my exposure to them. Um, where where do you find vinyl, by the way? Like wh- where that people commonly go or what they commonly handle might be made of vinyl? Shower curtains, flip-flops, um, certain toys, although less toys anymore. I mean, I you know, Kara, I am not an alarmist person. I sort of feel like it's very difficult for an individual to um, encase themselves in a world where they're not exposed to this stuff. If I had small children, if I was pregnant, I would be much more careful than I am as a middle-aged, you know, woman beyond that time in my life. I think as a policy... If you did have small children, what would you be more careful about? I would be careful about vinyl. If I had small children, I would be careful about how many canned goods I fed them because we know that the linings of a lot of cans are made with bisphenol A, which is another uh, chemical. It's a epoxy that has been linked with um, disruption of estrogen and, again, has been linked with a bunch of health effects related to that. Hmm. I would be careful about water bottles because, again, there have been some phthalates and things that have leached out of water bottles. I think those are the big ones. We have certainly seen over the last few years, um, whether it is companies like Starbucks saying, you know, um, we want to not have straws or reduce the use of straws to, you know, reduce our environmental footprint, or whether it's um, individual towns and cities saying we're not going to have plastic bags like to bag groceries in this town, or we're not going to even have plastic water bottles. That has happened in towns. What do you think of that sort of movement? What do you make of it? On the one hand, I think it's great. People are becoming more cognizant of all the manifold ways that we rely on plastic and we take these materials, you know, which frankly are high value materials. They're, they're made of fossil fuels, you know, limited fossil fuels, and they're being used for these very stupid, trivial things that something else could easily stand in for. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is we could ban every plastic straw in existence today We could ban every plastic bag in existence today, and that's an infinitesimal fraction Mm -hmm. of all the plastic that is out there. These are important sort of symbolic gateway things, but a third of all the plastic produced goes into packaging, and bags and straws and these kind of single-use things are just a very small piece of that packaging stream of of what I call sort of prefab litter Hmm. to really deal with the problems, the environmental problems posed by plastics requires more than straw bands. Hmm. Um, And then finally, so many of us like, you know, have recycling bins and we dutifully recycle the 
that plastic container our strawberries came in or a plastic water bottle or that plastic thing that our salad came in or whatever. Are we actually any good at recycling plastic? No, we're really bad at it. I mean, the whole world is. The current estimate is something worldwide, something like less than 10% of all plastic is ever recycled. Some countries do a better job on a countrywide basis, do a better job. In the U.S., we've never topped 10%. And it's a tough problem. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of plastics. You can't recycle that plastic water bottle with that plastic bag or with that cup If they're made of different plastics, Mm -hmm. they can't be recycled in the same way. And really up until January, you know, the main thing that happened with plastic that went into recycling in this country was that it went to China. And China did the job for Mm. us. You know, though we, we don't do a good job on it, I would hate to see us abandon that. I mean, again, this is stuff that we have made from fossil fuels. We've scraped it from the ground great expense and and effort and political debate, and it just seems stupid to waste it or to just landfill it. I mean, we, we have to sort of find a way to, to make recycling a plastic work. Hmm. Susan Frankel is a science writer. She's the author of the book Plastics, a toxic love story. Susan, thank you very much. Thank you, Kara. I really enjoyed being here. Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane. Should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane. So other than recycling, how can we deal with old plastic in a safe and environmentally friendly way? The answer might be biodegradable plastics. We're going to have more on that at our website, innovationhub.org. Mr. Cellophane should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane, because you can look right There are some things about the holidays that don't seem like they ever change. That centerpiece that comes out of the basement every year, mountains of cookies, which you shouldn't really eat, but it's the holidays, so you do, Salvation Army bell ringers, lots of requests for charitable donations in the mail, and decisions about who to give to. But as economic realities and cultural priorities have shifted, that story of who is getting our charitable donations and who's giving them, that's changed a lot. Stacey Palmer has tried to figure out what's going on. She's the editor of The Chronicle of Philanthropy, which recently published America's Favorite Charities 2018. Stacey, welcome. Great to join you. So let me just start with kind of a taste of that change that I was talking about. Um, When I looked at that list of America's Favorite Charities that you put out, um, the ones that are growing like gangbusters um, include... Just as some examples, the Mayo Clinic, St. Jude's, and the ACLU. And some of the charities that are certainly very big but are not particularly growing and may, in fact, be shrinking in terms of what people give them um, are sort of more classic holiday-giving charities like uh, the United Way and the Salvation Army. Um, What, in your estimation, is going on? We think that there are a lot of things happening that are affecting charitable giving. So there's probably not just one answer. But the biggest thing we see is that the economic divide that we have in this country really affects charitable giving. Mm -hmm. So the very wealthy are giving extremely generously, and they're giving to the kinds of causes that they're interested in. And the middle class is cutting back on its giving. And so the charities that were supported largely by those kinds of people are really feeling the pain. Um, why 
uh, why is it the middle class cutting back because they have less money? Is it because there's some kind of cultural change going on? Like, why is that divide growing? One of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, certainly people have less discretionary money. Certainly employment is very high, but some people are working two or three jobs mm-hmm. and they may not feel that they have extra money to spare to give to charity. Mm-hmm. Others may wonder, you know, what difference does my $10 make? Um, I see all of these multi-billionaires giving these $100 million, $300 million gifts, and it makes my gift feel maybe a little bit small. Mm-hmm. So I think that that may be part of it. The other thing we're seeing is there are lots of informal ways that people help each other. You might go help a neighbor. You might give a couple dollars on a crowdfunding site to somebody who needs medical care. That is definitely generosity and helping other people, but it's not what we count as charitable giving. So it could be that the numbers are distorted a little bit by the ways people are changing how they give. And and if we go back to like the actual places that people are giving to, you know, I mentioned that you know, if you look at the past 10 years of what the Salvation Army has gotten or what uh, United Way has gotten, they don't particularly seem like they're on a growth trajectory. But then when you look at the Mayo Clinic or the ACLU, it kind of knocks you out of your chair what they're doing in terms of how much money they're bringing in uh, compared to how much they used to bring in. Give me a sense of what's going on there. Yeah, it sure does. It's really staggering numbers that um, some of these charities are collecting. So they're definitely a success. Those kinds of groups are doing well because they're focusing on the very wealthiest in this country. So something like the Mayo Clinic just ran its first big capital campaign, and it persuaded millionaires and billionaires to give lots of giant gifts to finance medical research. That's a cause mm. that touches a lot of people. Right. Uh, either you've been sick yourself or you have family members who are. And the scientific discoveries that we're seeing all the time, that's also propelling a lot of giving. Uh, Wealthy people are very excited about the fact that they can contribute to advancing medical breakthroughs. So that's why you see uh, scientific institutions, hospitals, those kinds of organizations doing really well. Something like the ACLU may surprise you that they're doing as well as they are with the wealthy, but they're also making a big push um, in Silicon Valley and other kinds of places where there are very wealthy people. They have a very big effort to woo these really huge gifts. So that's working for them. And then, of course, they were beneficiaries of what some people call rage donations that came right after the 2016 elections and keep on going, um, where people who are motivated by politics say, you know, I'm this is the only way I can do something. I want to give to the ACLU or Planned Parenthood or those kinds of organizations. You know, so I believe this is right, that you've been working at the Chronicle of Philanthropy since the 80s, right? Yes. So, you know, give me a sense. When you kind of step back from all this, do you feel like somehow people have fundamentally changed um, in terms of what they think they should do at holiday time in terms of giving? Do you think um, it's really not an issue of people changing? It's really an issue of like economics has so radically changed that this was inevitable. I just wonder what you feel like you're seeing. Yeah, There, there are a number of things. One is that 
you know, the way especially I would say the millennials want to think about being socially responsible is very broad-minded. They might think about putting a solar panel on their house. They're going to drive a car that is, you know, environmentally friendly or not drive at all. All of the things that they do to be socially conscious are part of how they think about their charitable responsibility. So, I think we're seeing that permeate the culture. So just writing a check used to feel like the kind of thing we all did as a good thing. But now there's so many other things you can do. Mm. And it's possible that those things altogether are more meaningful and we're seeing a shift in how we promote social change. So that part could be indeed a good thing. The other thing we're seeing is people wanting to be much more hands-on and find the impact of their donations. And when they see that they're making a difference, they want to give. But they're being pickier if they don't think that they're getting results. So I think that's causing a lot of charities to question themselves and say, how can we do better? Are we really producing the results that make a difference? Does that then account for this kind of almost generational shift away from places where you people would have once sent $15 at Christmas and been like, okay, well, that's my contribution to American Heart Association or to um, United Way or whatever. And and like you're saying, they're looking for, okay, but if I'm $10 or $20 in a vast sea, I'm not exactly sure what the impact is. And they're looking for that place where they can make the difference. Yes, I think they really want to be sure that if they're going to part with money that is important to them and their families, that it really is going to do good. And one of the things that people who follow charity have said all along is that it used to be that the very oldest generation, um, the people who are now in their late 70s, 80s, 90s, those people just wrote a check because it was the good thing to do. But starting with the baby boomers on down, everyone started questioning a little bit, what difference is it making when I give? And so you see groups like Donors Choose, for example, which allows people to give money directly to teachers in a classroom. So let's say they need to buy crayons or something like that. And, you know, with all the cutbacks in government funds to schools, a lot of teachers had been paying for those things themselves. Well, you know, they can post online, here's what I need for my kids, here's this great science experiment we're going to do, can you help me? Well, when you see that you can give that direct one-on-one help to a specific group of students, that's pretty motivating and exciting. So we see groups like that growing really fast. And that didn't happen, you know, before we had online giving and the fact that there's so much transparency that you can see exactly where your dollars are going and making a difference. Right, right. So then when you were talking before about how we see wealthier people giving more and people in the middle class may be giving a little bit less. Is there any way to know whether, in fact, the middle class is maybe not giving less, they're just giving differently, and maybe they're not giving to the huge behemoth charities, but they are giving to, like, you know, you mentioned Donors Choose. They're giving to, like, the, the, the teacher in Topeka who wants to do a science thing, and they need $200, and four people give $50, and there they go. Well, one thing we do know is that there's been a... 10 percentage point drop in the share of Americans who give to charity. And that's been over the past decade. So we do know that fewer people are giving and overall charitable giving has been stable or growing. So that part is clear that people certainly aren't giving to traditional kinds of charities. So what we don't know is whether they're diverting things to, let's say, a crowdfunding site, helping somebody build a small business, do those kinds of things that are certainly helping others, but aren't in the definition of charitable, you can't take a tax deduction for that kind of a gift. 
Does it worry you? Do you think it worries, like when you sort of talk to people you know who think a lot about philanthropy sort of in your space, does it worry you that that uh, just a few people are, have so much influence and I don't just mean like you know five or ten people, but but that but that top you know one two three percent of Americans now has so much influence on sort of where charitable dollars go. Yeah, there are a lot of people in the charity world and scholars who are raising many many questions about why giving isn't more democratic, and certainly people who work at nonprofits are very concerned. One of the things they want is a broad base of support so that they know that the kind of work they're doing involves all Americans, that there's feedback, and the idea of just a few rich people, no matter how well-intentioned they are, making the decisions without necessarily consulting the communities they're trying to help, that seems very worrisome to a lot of people, and there have been many times in which philanthropists have gone in and thought they had this marvelous idea, and then communities have not been transformed. uh, And that leads to great resentment and disappointment. So Mm -hmm. I think we see growing movements to talk about um, maybe there should be more people from a community on a foundation's board, let's say, um, and not just wealthy people. We did a study that looked at who's on America's foundation boards, and it is absolutely the upper crust, Ivy League, uh, people who live on the coast. It is not representative of America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just a question that I think America's businesses have, too. Do you do a better job when you have more diverse voices in the mix? And I think we all agree that you do better with different points of view. And certainly when you're in the business of social change, you should be asking for lots of ideas and contributions from everybody in the world. Right, right. Um, how do you think the tax bill that passed last year and the changes to the tax code, how has that impacted what people give to charity and just sort of that broad picture of charitable giving? That's a really important point because the tax law that was passed at the end of last year is really worrying many of the charities that depend on these middle class donors because it did cut off the charitable deduction for those people by Going to a world in which you have a standard deduction, couples will be able to write off $24,000. You probably won't take a charitable deduction. That means you don't have an incentive to give anymore. Now, for the wealthy, things didn't really change that much. It changed a little bit for affluent people who are worried about the impact of their property taxes and all of those kinds of things, which influences charitable giving because, you know, at the end of the day, it all comes out of one pot. Um, so there's possibly concern about that. But the biggest worry is that all of a sudden there is less incentive to give to charity for those very donors who we've already seen the drop off in charitable giving among those people. Hmm. I don't know if people... Uh ever ask you this, um, since you often like think about, you know, large sums of money. But I mean, you know, if somebody's thinking about, okay, well, this is maybe the time of year when I give money away. And it's usually, you can fill in the blank, $50, $500, $5,000, you know, whatever. Um, are there, but, but there's so many, uh, you know, solicitations I get and so many ideas of where this could go. Do you have thoughts about uh, where it could go and how you kind of think through those questions as an individual? Yeah, it's a a really challenging question. Um, The first thing to do is to think about the causes that 
mean the most to you. And whatever those kinds of things are is to go look for the charities that are truly making a difference in that area. One thing you can do is volunteer. That helps you see whether groups are doing great work or not. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you don't have time to do that, there are lots of sites where you can do research. You can be in touch with people who know about an area, let's say it's education or healthcare, and find out what groups are doing the best work. If you're a truly thoughtful donor, I think the other thing is to think about where is it that there's a lot of need but other people might not be willing to give to. Uh, One of the things, for example, we've all seen so many people touched by the opioid crisis, for example, Mm -hmm. but how many people would necessarily think about giving their charitable contributions to groups that are working to fight that? That's not the kind of cause that you get a warm, fuzzy solicitation from in the mail around this Mm -hmm. time of year. So think about how you find the most effective groups, let's say in an area like that, in something that's more shall we say, controversial, a little bit more difficult for some people to support, you can really make a big difference by thinking about what is the kind of thing that is very worthy, but just not going to get a lot of publicity, not a brand name charity, but truly making a difference. Stacy Palmer is the editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. They recently published America's Favorite Charities 2018. Stacy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. If you want to dive into the full list of the 100 nonprofits that the Chronicle of Philanthropy ranked as America's favorite charities, we're going to have the link to that on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. It's probably not something you think about every day, but the stuff we buy has often traveled a long way to get to us. A few years ago, the writer Paul Greenberg, an expert on seafood, told me an amazing story about, of all things, squid and its journey. You can be sitting in Santa Barbara having some nice fried calamari next to the boat that caught it. But meanwhile, in between it coming from the boat to your plate, it's made a bypass over to Qingdao and come back. The reason that squid takes such an incredibly long trip to get to those lovely seafood restaurants in California isn't actually too surprising. Labor is cheaper in China, so the squid gets frozen, sent off to the other side of the world to get clean, then it's refrozen and shipped back here. Of course, when the squid returns to America on the high seas, it's got lots of company. Toys, electronics, party supplies, T-shirts, pretty much anything you can imagine. And that includes pharmaceuticals. When we take a pill, it's a lot more complicated than putting on a T-shirt. Rosemary Gibson is a longtime healthcare writer who argues that the last few decades have seen one country, China, become the pharmacy to the world, which may have some real upsides, but it also has some issues. Back in 1988, we had penicillin and other antibiotic big plants all around the country and an emergency preparedness plan in case something happened to them. Actually, a guide on how to repair them if they were damaged. We don't have that anymore. We've just let them go as because they're commodities now. Gibson says that China lobbied American pharmaceutical companies hard to get these plants. The government often subsidized them, and American executives, as well as executives around the world, made strategic cost-saving decisions, which has left us, in Gibson's view at least, in a precarious position. 
Take, for example, the infamous anthrax attacks of 2001, right after 9-11, when anthrax was sent by mail to politicians and to people in the media. When the U.S. government needed to buy 20 million doses of doxycycline, a recommended uh, treatment, it turned to a very uh, reputable European company. But I spoke to the CEO, and he said he had to get the starting material from a plant in China. So when we have a big public health event and a national security event, uh, this is where we turn to and where we rely on to get our medicine. Gibson is a co-author of the book China Rx, Exposing the Risks of America's Dependence on China for Medicine. And she says, no matter what the country is, having so much of our supply chain concentrated in one place, that's not a great idea. And we're not just talking the antidote for anthrax here. We're talking about birth control pills and vitamin C tablets and almost anything else you can possibly imagine. And we're also not just talking about America's medicines being made in China. We're talking about a huge chunk of the world's medicines. If China shut the door on exports for whatever reason, pharmacy shelves in the United States would be bare within months. That's how dependent we are. So how did this happen? Rosemary Gibson says part of the reasons that American companies were making independent decisions about where to put new manufacturing plants. It was all kind of piecemeal. China took the opposite approach. They had a plan. The government has an industrial policy that said, we're going to do this. We're going to be making these products that are essential for medicines around the world. And so they invested billions and billions of dollars. Let's take the penicillin example. The government invested billions of dollars in these huge uh, infrastructure capability to make these giant penicillin fermentation plants that are three stories high. And with that government subsidy, it's really hard for private companies in other countries, the U.S. and elsewhere, to begin to compete with that. Well, I was just going to say, so this was a government plan from China, like medicine, it's going to be a real focus of uh, our manufacturing sector. That's right. And there's a Made in China 2025 initiative that says we're going to become the pharmacy to the world. And... As plants shut down in Europe that made different medicines, as they shut down in India, as they shut down in Canada, as they shut down in the U.S., did anybody who ran pharmacies or who worked for maybe the Food and Drug Administration or anything say, ah, gee, maybe this isn't the best idea? There are people that have been aware of this, FDA and elsewhere, But I think people are so busy doing their jobs that we didn't step back and take a look at this big picture. Hmm. One of the fascinating things we found was after the U.S. opened up free trade with China in 2000, that's when we began to see the cascade of our last penicillin plant closing, the last vitamin C plant shutting down. That's when we saw the last aspirin manufacturer closing. So who knew that our trade policy has such a big impact on where our medicines come from. So let's go back for a minute uh, into history. Um, There was a time when uh, drugs were not that accessible to people. They were very expensive. This was sort of before generics came on the scene. Um, But then, you know, we had a situation where once generics were possible, things went off patent and a whole bunch of companies could compete to make a cheaper version of a drug. Um, You know, that was good for patients in some way because drugs were more affordable. 
maybe much like how lots of other things that we buy or meet in China, you know, maybe it's a good thing overall that drugs are made in a place where, you know, the cost of labor is a little bit cheaper, which then makes the drug a little bit cheaper. Oh, sure. It's very a, a wonderful thing that we've done to have generic drugs be made available to the public. It's helped people be able to continue to take their medicine in a way that's affordable, at least most of the time. But one of the challenges that we've figured out is there's a really high price that we've been paying for cheap drugs. Hmm. So one of the reasons our generic drugs have been so cheap is because there has not been enforcement of pollution laws in China. Another good example I'll give you, the very dedicated FDA inspectors were in a plant in China, and they it was a hot summer day, very humid, and the folks in the plant opened the window to cool it off. But it turns out this was a medicine that was supposed to be made in a temperature-controlled environment. And the company did not invest and pay for the cost of a temperature and humidity control system. And so that can degrade the quality of the product. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rosemary Gibson, a co-author of the book China Rx, Exposing the Risks of America's Dependence on China for Medicine. I should say that you know, we've been talking a lot about prescription drugs and how, you know, sort of the global supply chain may be more problematic than we think. Um, you make the point, th this is not just an issue of prescription drugs. This is also just an issue of walking into the pharmacy and buying over-the-counter stuff, too. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Let's talk about vitamin C. Some people might be taking a pill in the morning uh, after breakfast or you might be seeing ascorbic acid, Now I'm using those terms interchangeably. You might see ascorbic acid in the ingredients in hamburger buns or a soft drink. And so for many, many years, the United States made ascorbic acid. But then we saw what we call the vitamin C cartel, a handful of companies come in and flood the market, global market, with below market price product. And that drove out all the Western producers at least most of them. And then the price went up 700%. Hmm. And this was actually a subject of a fascinating court case that's still in play after 10 years. But that case was appealed by the Chinese companies. And interestingly, the government of China said, well, it was a matter of Chinese law that we required our companies to form a cartel, to control the volume of exports, how much our companies send to the United States. And the argument is, you can't have companies that have to abide by Chinese law and U.S. law at the same time because they conflict. Hmm. And the Court of Appeals in New York agreed with that and said in the interest of international comity, we are going to reverse the lower court judgment. Hmm. Think of the implications of that. That effectively legitimizes cartel-type behavior for everything that we get uh, from that country. That means other governments can control the volume of what they send to us it could happen to our medicines, and they can control the price. This is a really important point. When we lose control over the supply of our medicines, we lose control over the price that we pay. Have you heard any lawmakers, any folks in government, officials, um, say, 
you know, this is a really important issue to us. We're going to try to do something about it. You know, we don't have enough control sort of over both maybe the safety and quality of the medicine we're getting, but then also if there was a pandemic or if there was a national security issue or, I mean, if we were in a dispute with China, for example, which is not inconceivable, it could happen, um, that, gee, there should be some kind of like plan B here. There's a small group of people in the public health and FDA community who are aware of this. But most people in important policymaking positions are unaware. And we can't fix the problem that we don't know about. If somebody in the government, the head of the FDA, called you in tomorrow and they said, you know, Rosemary, we've read your book and we, we see a real problem here, what would you suggest? And they're asking you, like, what would your suggestion be in terms of how we move forward in a positive way to try to ensure um, the safety and quality of medicines in the U.S.? I suggest that we begin to think about our medicines differently than the cheapest commodity that we can get on the global market, especially medicines like antibiotics and chemotherapies. We need to think of them as a strategic asset, like we do oil and other energy supplies. Hmm. If we ran out of oil and natural gas, the country would come to a halt. And the same is true with our medicines. So let's, first of all, think differently about them. Right. Our medicines are made by private companies, but they serve a, a public purpose. And so we need to bring that public purpose into our thinking about how we should ensure we have an uninterrupted supply of quality medicines now and for generations to come. Rosemary Gibson is a longtime healthcare writer. She's a co-author of the book China Rx, Exposing the Risks of America's Dependence on China for Medicine. Rosemary, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. On our website, we'll have more about prescription drugs, particularly their costs, and how, though much of the motivation behind moving production to China in the first place was to control costs, that hasn't exactly worked out. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also have production help from Asil Kibbe and Wen Lei. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.